you would please turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of Titus as we uh, go there again, as we soon will complete our study in this marvelous little book. And so rich in what it teaches us. I would ask you please to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. I'm going to start reading in um, verse 1 of chapter 3. I'm going to read down through verse 8. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and slow to perfect courtesy toward and show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. I ask you to go to prayer. Pray for me. Pray for yourselves as I preach God's word this morning. Let's pray. And God in heavenly Father, we would ask if there are hearts that are slow to believe, hearts, O God, that are filled with doubt, that you would grant grace, O Lord, to revive those hearts, that you would work in the congregation of your son this morning. We pray if any are here outside of faith, that you would grant salvation to them, this great message of the gospel, which is the hope of the day and through the ages. I ask you to help me as I preach to give me your grace, unction of your spirit. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to ask you to begin. I want to begin this morning by asking you all a question. So everybody needs to listen. Tune in. It's personal, but it's not awkward or embarrassing. Just personal, and that's this. Are you confident that if you died today, you would go to heaven? Do you have a great confidence in that? And so really fear, as far as death is concerned, is not something that you deal with. Do you have that confidence that if you fell over dead right now, you would be in heaven with Christ? Alistair Begg, I listened to a sermon of, of his on this text, and he said this. He said, if you ask nine out of ten people this question, they respond by saying, I hope so. Not really a great deal of confidence in that kind of expression. When I was growing up, I, a friend of mine's grandmother told us you weren't supposed to be able to know if you were going to heaven. That's not biblical. 
And that really robs you of any hope that you might possibly have of being in glory. Are you going to heaven? Well, I don't know. I hope so. And you recognize how that would be terribly, terribly uh, unmotivating. It would destroy motivation to labor for the church, to labor for the cause of Christ. If you simply say, well, I've served Jesus all these years. I've been as faithful as I possibly could be. Whether or not I'm going to heaven, I just can't answer that question. Well, that is expression, number one, of ignorance. And number two, a lack of faith in God's word. Confidence and courage in the face of the reality of heaven is lost. If you simply come to that expression, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. Well, the text that we look at this morning uh, from this few verses of, uh, of Titus, really one verse particularly, answers the question as to how we may know with confidence we are going to heaven. Another question, do you care? Do you really take seriously the threats of hell? And the blessings of heaven. Do you take those things seriously? Uh, if you don't, well, uh, you're like George C. Scott, the actor uh, who pay, played Patton. Some of you may not know you in 1970, Patton, you know, great film. Uh, who was asked by Larry King, uh, George C. Scott almost died. And he was on Larry King Live, a talk show host from Errors Gone Back. And Larry King asked George C. Scott this question when he was possibly going to die. Were you afraid? He said, no. What do you think happens after death? Nothing. Just non-existence. Well, that absolutely is not biblical. This morning, as we look at this uh, verse, these consider these uh, doctrines, I would have us to see this, that we should have a firm conviction that we are going to be in glory with God because God is the one who provides the means and the surety that you're going to be there. It's a plan that started in ages past. It's a plan that God has initiated and carried out. Therefore, we can be with confidence, uh, say with confidence that we are going to be in heaven. Three things this morning. I'm only going to look at two. That our place in heaven is secured by the work of Christ and that our place in heaven is reserved for us. And actually, your name is written on the inheritance that God has in store for you. So the first place is secure for us by the work of Christ. Paul has pointed this out in the beginning of the book. In verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And so this work of redemption was a work that began before time was. Which means it's eternal in the mind of God. And it is something that because God has done it, it is certainly going to take place. God created all things. The promise of salvation goes back to the time before the creation. As it says here in the text, that it is something that we have by God's promise. It is something that we have from the all ages, it says here in the text, from ages past. Um, uh, that uh, this hope of eternal life is something that was done uh, in eternity past, if you will. John Owen said this, although the first formal promise was given after the fall, and it was in Genesis 3.15, the fall takes place. The promise is given uh, that Christ is going to come, and Christ is going to pay for our sins upon the cross of Calvary. 
Christ is going to pay for our sins by keeping the law consistently. But though it came to fruition through ages of present, uh, it was a preparation of grace and eternal life in the counsels of God with his unchangeable purpose to communicate them unto us that all the fullness of God is engaged in those All the faithfulness of God is engaged in those graces. And so that we base our assurance not upon the things that we do or have done or possibly could do because you can't do it. You base it upon what God has done and He turns you past by the promise to Christ. He determined it. And what God has determined is certainly going to come to fruition. And the only hope of salvation that we have is the hope of the promise of God. And that's hope enough. That's surety enough. And that should give us a great confidence that when we quit this world, we are going to be in the presence of our great God. And certainly the New Testament is filled with reasons for us to believe and to hope and to cling to uh, the reality of our uh, uh, life and glory. The promise was made to Christ on our behalf. Again, John Owen, the great Puritan, eternal life is said to be promised of God before the world began. That is, to the Son of God for us on his undertaking on our behalf. And so the promise then was made to Christ. We are recipients of the fulfillment of that promise through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he suffered on the cross. He suffered all that was necessary for us to be able to uh, participate in the redemption that he has a promise uh, that he has uh, done for us. Uh, all the grace and mercy that we enjoy today, all the hope that we have today of being in glory are because of God's faithfulness and Christ's faithfulness to suffer all the sufferings that we would have to entail on the cross of Calvary. So Jesus said, as you know, at the end of it all, it is finished. What did Jesus mean? It is finished. He didn't simply mean it's time for me to die. You know, he gave up his spirit. He meant that all that was necessary for you and for me and the company of God's people throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, to be in heaven was fulfilled by the work of Christ in his sufferings on the cross of Calvary. If you want to see the intensity of it, look at the Garden of Gethsemane. There is Jesus praying, it says, and that his sweat becomes like great drops of blood. He's praying with such intensity. You know what he prays? If there is any way, let this cup pass from me. I can't begin to imagine the horror of being punished for the sins of your people. If there's any way, let this cup be passed from you. Then he qualifies it. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. We have to qualify all of our prayers like that. It's hard to do, is it not, at times. Very difficult for us to do that. Well, what Paul refers to here as he looks at the promises uh, made before time was uh, the Pactum Salutis, the covenant of redemption, where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, if you would, covenant together. Uh, and the Father chose a people. And the Son promised to die for those people. And the Holy Spirit promised to redeem those people by applying uh, the work of Christ to their lives. All of this 
Jesus said, those the Father has given me, so the people given to him. And the Son securing their life by his perpetual obedience and his death upon the cross and his resurrection. And the Spirit faithfully applying the work of Christ to the elect. And the ministry our Lord accomplished, we have to keep in mind, was according to the eternal plan of God. We need to, look, we need to go there and think about that. As it was foretold by the prophets of old, as it was pictured in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, uh, as it was laid out for us in the New Testament with the birth of Christ, all of these things taking place according to God's will and God's purpose, again, which was from eternity past. Listen to this. There never was a moment, if we can speak of moments in eternity, when God did not have an intention to save you by name. Never was a moment. Which means there is not a doubt that those whom Christ has redeemed are going to be in heaven with our great God and Savior. So uh, Christ suffered the full wrath of God upon the cross and we have confidence that he paid it all, or at least we should. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sakes he made him to knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's a great exchange that we read about in the scriptures. This is the gospel. Does this affect you at all? Does this warm your heart or encourage you at all? This is the gospel of Christ. This is the gospel. This is the difference in you going to hell and going to heaven. That's what it is. That's the gospel. The difference in surety of being in glory with God and his people are being in hell with Satan. You know, I don't believe in the hell you're saying. Christ did. I guess you know more about eternal things and spiritual things than Jesus. Christ sure believed in it. And there are going to be people in hell. The only reason you're not going to be there is grace. God's grace in your life. And a tendency that we have uh, is to have this thought that, well, I've just got to do something else. Surely, surely uh, the good works I do, they, they mean something. That I can feel good about that and therefore be confident I'm going to be in heaven because I do these things. Or surely the fact that I teach well, that means that God uh, uh, is going to give me an extra crown or he's going to give me a, a special opening of the door because I've earned it. No, no, that that is all entirely wrong. And when we start thinking like that, where is our spiritual focus? It's not on Christ. It's on ourselves. What can I do to make my place in heaven more secure? Well, the answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because when you think that way, what you're doing is adding to the work of Christ, redemptive work of Christ that he accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. It puts unnecessary pressure on yourself. It's going to cause you to spend sleepless nights worrying, what can I do to be confident that I'm going to be in heaven? I'm just not confident enough. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about obedience. Obedience to Christ is an indication of our love for him. Jesus, John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
So we certainly have to be concerned about obedience. It's a matter of faithfulness to God. But listen to this. Our obedience does not in any way cause God to love us more. Our failure does not cause God to love us least. That love is constant. It's not an ebb and flow. And our failures in no way throw into question our being in glory, nor do our successes in any way make better the opportunity or chances will be in glory. Because it is all of the Lord Jesus Christ. When justification, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's grace whereby he says to us, not guilty. If God has declared you not guilty, why do you want to declare yourself guilty? Again, I'm not saying, and don't leave here saying the pastor said it doesn't matter if you obey or not. That's not what I'm saying. All I'm saying is our obedience does not make us more justified, does not fully guarantee or more guarantee our place in heaven. That is all the work of Christ on our behalf the work that he accomplished for us. Well, if we have this sense then that, yes, I know that I'm going to heaven. I know that Christ died for me. I have the confidence that he has paid everything. As far as the price to be paid for my sin, he's taken care of that. Then I know, you see, that I have a place reserved in heaven for me, an inheritance that is mine. Remember, the plan for God to redeem his people was formulated in the ages past, realized in the fullness of time. As it says in the book of Galatians, in the fullness of time, Christ came. And so all this is fascinating to me. If you, you know, before time was, all these things were put together, if you will. And all these things were going to happen when time began in particular ways. And nothing was going to stop it. Nothing was going to change it. It was surely going to come to pass. So it began in ages past, but began to be realized uh, in time. So God eternally determined to save a people through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our first parents fell by sinning against God. What did they deserve? What did Adam and Eve deserve? He had already told him, in the day you eat of this, you're going to die. Be forewarned. If you don't listen to me, says God, the day you eat of this, you're going to reap the rewards of your disobedience. Not like they didn't know. What they deserved was his, uh, his condemnation, God's condemnation. And yet we see grace there in the garden. When he tells them and provides for them uh, a, a surety that something was going to happen so that someone was going to take care of this and defeat Satan. He shall bruise his head, but he shall, he shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush his head. There it is, the, de- the defeat that Satan received on the cross of Calvary. But the sin that Adam and Eve committed or passed on to those who descended from them by ordinary generations, it says in uh, the scriptures. So God had determined to save us. From eternity past, he determined to save us. The God of the Bible is not weak. The God of the Bible is not helpless. 
the God of the Bible will accomplish his purposes. Isaiah 14, 24, this needs to be memory verse, if it has not been in the past. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, it shall stand. Again, Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts is purpose, who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, who can turn it back? You can't slap God's hand and make him remove it. You can't slap God's hand and cause him to change his purposes. He is going to accomplish, determined to accomplish redemption for us. And that is exactly what happened on the cross of Calvary. Now we have to keep in mind this. That even the fall itself happened according to God's decree. And it's not the picture that God was pacing, hoping against hope that Adam and Eve would not sin against him. No, uh, it was ordained that they would commit the sin. And yet, God is not the author of sin. It says in James chapter 113, Let no one say when I am tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by sin. No temptation you've ever faced is there because God's behind it. It is, as it says in the scriptures, that sin that lurks within us. That sin that is present always, that remnant of sin within us. Which can cause, if Christians listen to the temptations that come their way, to do horrible things. Case in point, King David committed adultery, committed murder. A man after God's own heart. Are we stronger than King David? No. The difference is when we're tempted to say no. When we're tempted to do something, we do not give in to it. Well, God is not the author of sin. Did the fall please God? No. It was not pleasing to him. As a matter of fact, because of what happened in the garden by their falling into that uh, trap that Satan set before them, is the entirety of the creation has been brought under a curse. And we do die. We don't die immediately, and they didn't die immediately either, Adam and Eve. They lived for a time, but we do die. And we're dead spiritually. We are born dead spiritually. We are born by nature at odds with God. We are born by nature having no interest in the things of God. Not saying that we're not religious. We are born by nature religious as well. But it's a religion that works within us or a nature that works within us uh, uh, that is perverted. And so we see all these uh, fake religions all over the world. We see uh, religions that really uh, foster ungodliness. God hates what happened in the fall, and yet it was decreed by God that it would do so. And God's sovereignty does not in any way violate the volition of his creatures. You are responsible for every sin you've ever committed. It's not God's fault. It's your fault because you made the decision to do whatever it was that you did. We are responsible creatures, though God is sovereign. So God created all things. He made them perfectly. He decreed for the fall to take place. Uh, and he, uh, um, out of the mass of humanity, decreed to save a people and that they would be saved by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a quote, quote to Walter Cronkite. And that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Well, now, what uh, are we going to, how are we going to respond to this? Some people, listen to this, some people 
as they go through these things, questions like, well, uh, what was God doing before the creation? I don't know. I don't need to know. I know this. There was fellowship within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit with perfect unity and happiness between themselves. It's not for us to know silly things like that. Or they say, well, you know, the, the universe is so big. Uh, you know, they just uh, threw that uh, uh, Jimmy Webb, James Webb uh, telescope. Uh, they discovered more galaxies. What that does to me is make me more mindful of the greatness of God. And they say, do you expect me to believe that God made all this? And that he rules over it. And it even says in the Bible, he calls the stars by name. You expect me to believe that? Uh, yeah. I do. Which is harder to believe? That there is a triune God, majestic, all-powerful, who made everything. Or that somehow and in some way by chance, the creation came into, into existence. It makes a whole lot more sense to me to acknowledge that God created all things. And the marvel, as you look at the creation, is the consistency of it. It's not chaos. The laws that govern here govern in outer space as well. At the observatory, the uh, George R. Brown Observatory, which I hope we get to go there. We tried four times. It always was cloudy. Uh, we're going to do it again this year. Uh, they had the telescope focused. It's not a real powerful telescope, but it could go 5,000 light years into space. And we looked at this little, it looked like a bunch of, uh, it was it looked fuzzy. Um, but they said it was because of all the winds that were blowing out there. But they can determine by the way light bends that the same laws that apply here apply in the far reaches of space. That shows not chaos, but consistency. Because one God created and the one God rules over all things. So then we come to uh, these people who say, I can't understand this, therefore I'm going to reject it. Well, how big is your God? Catechism question number four, what is God? God is the spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He is all Powerful from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. The question is, how can we comprehend as much of him as we do? How can we understand as much as we do about God? It's his grace, and he's revealed himself to us. The marvel of it is we can understand anything at all, and the marvel is we can have a relationship with him at all. So he states the reasons here, the apostle does, in our being, in the work of Christ, our being saved, and it is here. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justified by his grace, we might become heirs. There's the crescendo of the work of Jesus. It's not much ado about nothing when you look at the work of Christ. It has to do with God having a people to himself that are going to be able to live forever in spite of the fact of what they deserve. Or in spite of the fact that death rules. That we might be heirs, he says here, of eternal life. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ came and did what he did, according to the Apostle Paul here. And it is that it makes perfect sense that we might become heirs. This is a henoclause in the Greek, which shows reason or shows cause. Uh, 
and uh, it translates here as uh, so that in other places in order that it translates and it explains what followed. What followed? Redemption. What's the end of it? Eternal life. It's absolutely beautiful the way that this works. And so uh, in the New Testament, we find it uh, very, very pr- uh, clearly uh, pointed out for us. Uh, Hebrews 6, uh, 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no other greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. These promises are ours, you understand. Uh, and uh, thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all that dispute and oath is a final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have uh, fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope that is set before us. That's it. Are you confident you're going to heaven? Well, the more you focus on yourself, the least confident you're going to be. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was the physician to the queen at one time, became a preacher. And he wrote several books. One book he wrote was called, it's called um, uh, Spiritual Depression. I would recommend it to you. In that book, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, that one certain, there's a chapter called That One Certain Sin. And what it's saying there is there's something that you've done in your past you just can't forgive yourself for. You can't get over it. It plagues you. It's there gnawing at you. Well, that's just a lie from Satan. God does not hold the sins of the past against you. If you did, then he's a liar. Because he tells us in the Bible he doesn't. As far as the east is from the west, so far as I have I removed, not will I remove, but have I removed your transgressions from you. And that it is by faith in God's promises and confidence in his trustworthiness that all doubts, all fears, all questions are put aside. That I know Because of Christ, I have a place in glory. Have I sinned? Sure. Who had? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have some done simply reprehensible things? Sure. Sure. But if you're in Christ, then God forgives those sins. And he assures us that we are going to be in glory with him. And that great doctrine of adoption is a part of the whole process of our having an inheritance. Adoption is a work of God's grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to the privileges of the children of God. Those are ours because of Christ, by his work, and by the grace of adoption. They're ours. So you have it in here. You know, people here uh, have amassed some, a great deal of stuff. A great deal of stuff. And they do quite well. And they're going to leave it to their children. At least that's the way it works most of the time. 
And that inheritance belongs to them. And perhaps it is, like in some families, you have a particular thing. This is going to go to so-and-so. This is going to go to so-and-so. This is going to go to so-and-so. And that's the way it is. Well, you have, if you're a Christian, an inheritance that God has prepared for you. It's got your name on it. Whatever it involves, I don't know. I don't know, but I guarantee you this. It's better than anything you have here. Anything you have here. And the wonder of it, the great wonder and, and exciting thing about it, uh, we'll never sin again. We'll never have a fight with one another again. We'll never have quarrels again. Uh, we will never suffer cancer again. And Johnny won't use a walker. Caleb won't be in a wheelchair. That's the glory of it. That great glorification of body and the resurrection of the dead in glory. That's just part of the way there. When we die and go to heaven, the real consummation is at the coming of Jesus. As we read in the scriptures, the earth will give up its dead. I watched, uh, there's a television show, I don't watch it very often, but it had the TV on while I was helping Melinda do some stuff that she made me do. And uh, I was happy to help her. And uh, it's a, a lady that does uh, autopsies. And so this brought this guy in that was pretty messed up. I mean, he was dead, of course, but he was kind of decayed. When you think about this, uh, that the Christian will be raised with no decay, no broken bones, no uh, uh, frailties, and no sin. We shall put on imperishable. Then shall come to the pass the saying that, uh, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Praise be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great God we have. What a great God who from all eternity past intended to redeem us, has done that through the works he's accomplished through Christ. And we have a place in glory that is ours. Let's pray.